False accusations cover a wide spectrum. Maybe someone has mistaken you for a celebrity, or maybe someone spread a rumor about you. But some false accusations have long and lasting consequences. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're exploring the most extreme types of false accusations, those that result in wrongful imprisonment. One man has an unfortunately expert understanding of the experience. Marty Tankliff was convicted of murdering his parents on Long Island in the early 1990s, but after more than 17 years in prison, he was exonerated. He joins us this morning along with Lonnie Sori, who has acted as his public advocate. Lonnie, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. Oh, thank you for inviting us. Marty, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. So, Lonnie, you're not a lawyer, you're not a politician, but yet you're heavily involved with helping people who you feel have been wrongfully put in jail. Yes. Uh, What we found, especially in post-conviction and wrongful convictions, is that often people were wrongfully convicted. It wasn't a mistake. It's not like a police officer lost the file. Usually it was either uh, complicity on top part of the prosecutors or the police. And often what happens is then judges and appellate judges just reaffirm these convictions. And we need to really open up and shed light on wrongful convictions, shed light on, on the process. And in fact, the decision to overturn a conviction, I believe, is a political decision. What inspired you to get involved in all of this? Well, I was always, uh, you know, somewhat of a progressive, worked in criminal justice early in my career before I went into the media business and public relations. Um, You know, I was a teacher and social worker, and my idea was always to change hearts and minds. Uh, Fast forward uh, 12 years ago, I get a call from an old friend of mine who was a police detective, and he called me up and he said, "Uh, hey, you want to make some money? And I said, sure. And he goes, I got this case in Long Island, this kid, Marty Tankliff, who falsely confessed to a crime he didn't commit. I, of course, at the time said, oh, yeah, sure, false confession. He goes, but, and his name is Jay Salpeter, uh, Detective Salpeter uh, said, we need to get this case out of Suffolk County. And that's what started the process, and I figured I'd work a couple of days, and, uh, and you know, I'd call the New York Times. We'd get it on the front page because it was a compelling story of Marty Tankliff and a false confession and the tragic murder of his parents and his struggle. He was sentenced to 50 to life for a crime he didn't commit. I figured I'd call the New York Times and get in the paper and he'd get out. Well, it took about eight years later, about 60 New York Times stories, stories on A&E and CBS 48 Hours and maybe even FUV to really change the hearts and minds and change the process and alert the judges and communicate to law clerks. The effort is to scream and scream innocence out there and also part of this process is to get new witnesses the more we had more witnesses come forward because they heard about marty's case on the air and they said you know what i know something about this i haven't told anybody and those people called our attorneys called our investigators called me we set up a tip line it's a real process and it's a campaign they campaigned to free marty tankliff and others Marty, you spent, what, more than 17 years behind bars? That's correct. Uh, almost 17 and a half years in prison in uh, New York State. How sweet does freedom taste? Uh, it's good. Um, it's really good. It's been very chaotic um, since I've been out. But there's, you know, it's, it's been a struggle. I mean, you know, I, I tell people, I said, some of the simplest things in life were the most difficult things in life, like getting a driver's license, where I had to walk in and they asked for six forms of identification. I had to bring a newspaper article, you know, in prison where we had 
choices of three different kinds of cereals. The first time I went to a supermarket, there was a whole aisle of cereals. Um, so, I mean, there's been struggles, but there's been good points and bad points at the same time. What goes through your mind when you're in jail for all of those years, knowing that you actually didn't commit a crime? The struggle to get out. Um, every day you're thinking, uh, you know, this is going to be my last day in prison, uh, even though you know that you're not really sure. You have to have hope. For me, it was I never considered myself living in prison. I used to say that I'm residing here. Um, I used to call it the school of hard knocks. And I used to focus on things on the outside instead of prison because I said, I'm not going to die here. I don't belong here. I used to read the newspaper on a regular basis. I used to read the newspaper so much that I would even give Lonnie and some of my friends restaurant recommendations. And I was actually pretty good at it. Lonnie said, how is it a guy in jail could give you a record, you know, restaurant recommendation? <laughs> Marty called me one day and said, you got to go to this restaurant around the corner from you in your office in Chelsea. And I'm thinking, this is really weird. <laughs> but I think to speak to that, Marty really, and I think it's a message to other men and women in prison, never gave up. He sent out thousands and thousands of letters. He, he, he spoke innocence. The words innocence constantly came out of his lips and went to everybody who would listen. There are people now, news reporters, lawyers, doctors, Indian chiefs, who say, yeah, Marty sent me a letter. And that's a message to other men and women in prison. Don't ever give up. There's always a way out. And your innocence, if you are innocent, will break through. Help us, Marty, to understand how you ended up in jail because, in fact, you did confess to the crime. Well, that's actually not true. There really wasn't a quote-unquote confession. Okay, explain that. Um, it's hard to explain, but the, I guess the easiest way to explain what a false confession is is that if you have a brother or sister, you're young, your parents go out, somebody breaks a lamp, your parents come home and said, we're not going out for ice cream until somebody tells us who broke the lamp. And quite often the person who didn't break the lamp says, well, I broke the lamp. That person has just confessed to a crime. That is, in essence, how a lot of false confessions occur, where an innocent person will admit their guilt to a crime they didn't commit, thinking that they will escape the confines of law enforcement, they'll escape the harassment, the brutality of it. Quite often, interrogations are physically abusive. They're mentally torturous. I remember hearing a story by Professor Sol Kassin where an individual who was bald was told that his hair was at the crime scene. He confessed to committing the crime because he said, well, they're obviously lying to me. His confession actually led to his conviction. Uh, in my case, it was basically the entire DA's office was against me. They created what we call like the snowball effect or the institutional blinders that once they publicly came out and said Marty Tank was guilty, they formulated this fake concept of a case against me. Detectives uh, showed bloody crime scene photos to witnesses. They brought witnesses into an evidence locker room and said, you have to testify a certain way. Detectives in my case were very manipulative. Evidence has come out that they were showing people things that they never should have seen before. But false confessions happen, and they, in New York State, has one of the highest percentages of false confessions. And what happens, and in Marty's cases, it's very true, is a scenario is created where the only rational answer is, I must have blacked out. They told Marty that his f hair was in his mother's fingernails. They told him that his father had woken up from a coma and identified him as the attacker. Was there like, a moment, Marty, where you actually believed all of that? At some point, you have no doubt that the police must be telling you the truth. And that's all the jury had to go on was that confession, largely? Yes. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, there was no there was no forensic evidence. I mean, you know, a, as we're reevaluating all the evidence now, more and more as we investigate the evidence, it shows my it further establishes my innocence. So, Lonnie, you basically led the campaign in the public's eye, right? Exactly. Me and Eric Friedman and Roz and all the folks in my office, we led a public campaign to free Marty Tankliff. And that's what it takes. It takes a campaign. It's, as Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village. But it was like, not only was like, who are our public audiences? Who did we want to communicate to? How are we getting the information out there? Part of it was educating the public about false confessions. In one case, I worked on the West Memphis Three case in Arkansas, and the prosecutor said that I poisoned the jury pool. I, of course, said I educated the public. We had, and we didn't, you know, people used to say, how come you don't get any movie stars to help Marty? Well, it wasn't that easy. Always. But we did get Jam James Gandolfini, the actor, who was a wonderful guy, and he drove four hours up to visit Marty on his birthday, uh, one August. And after he was finished, he said, you know, I'm not exactly an angel. Do you really want my help? And what I said to him was, Jim, if one appellate judge, if one law clerk spends five more minutes reading Marty's papers, his filings, then what you've done is going to be a big help. And that's exactly what happened. He came in. So we really want to get the word out, not only about the innocence, but about false confessions, about how false confessions and how wrongful convictions happen. Marty, do you believe that law enforcement, that prosecutors truly thought that you did it? Yes. Um, I, they become they, they end up having institutional blinders for them to be successful at what they do. They have to be convinced themselves that what they're doing is right. You know, Detective McCready, Detective Ryan. To this day, they probably still believe I'm guilty. We could walk in with a videotape, show them who committed the crime, and because of their mentality, their institutional blinders, their conviction, they would still think that I'm guilty. Even if we showed them the video, somebody else did the crime. And unfortunately, that is a kind of a, a common theme in law enforcement. A lot of detectives, even when they've been presented with evidence that they're wrong, they still don't want to admit they're wrong because it, in, in some cases, it opens up Pandora's box because if they're wrong in one case, how many other cases could they also be wrong in? There's an epidemic of wrongful convictions. Every day somebody else is get, getting out of prison. And then the new, news media generally covers it when the guy gets out. We want them to cover it before the guy gets out to get the word out. On the other hand, prosecutors will fight to their last breath to maintain a conviction. And we really need to change the mindset of prosecutors and judges because judges have power, but they're often complicit. Has anyone ever been held accountable, Marty, for your wrongful conviction? No. Um, to this day, the individuals who are responsible for my parents' murders and for those that were responsible for my wrongful incarceration are still walking the streets committing crimes. How does that make you feel? Uh, it, it's scary, um, knowing that society allows individuals who are known murderers, known rapists, known robbers, to continue walking the streets. I mean, that is really one of the biggest travesties in wrongful convictions, is that when you send an innocent person to prison, the guilty parties continue to remain free and continue to commit crimes. And that's what happened in my case. Every person who was involved in my case that was responsible for my parents' murders continued to remain free and continued their crime sprees. Do you feel that you sometimes still have to prove your innocence in the eyes of individuals out there, the public? Uh, not really, no. Um, you know, any, anyone who actually has some doubt, you know, when I talked to them, I said, what is it based on? And they said, well, one newspaper article. And I say to them, I said, 
honestly, if you're basing your opinion on that, I can't change it. You know, if you're really interested, why don't you read a book, read the case files, read the transcripts. And anyone who actually has had a little bit of doubt and actually read a little bit more about the case, um, their opinions changed dramatically, almost instantaneously. And what we did in Marty's case was, when I got on board, we went to all the old reporters. Part of how Marty got convicted and part of how wrongful convictions happen in high-profile cases is the media plays a major role in that conviction because the only person speaking to the media is the prosecutor. They have their own public relations departments. They put stuff out. The defense is often afraid. Lawyers are intimidated. They don't want family to talk. It's a big message. Speak loudly. We went back to all these old reporters and showed them new evidence. Then, 20 years later, you know, they came on board. They were the ones leading the charge for Marty's innocence. Now, Marty, you spent, as we said, more than 17 years in prison. Is there anger there? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't show it. You know, I've learned to kind of convert the anger into something positive. You know, I'm currently working at a law firm in Garden City, New York, Barquette, Marion, Epstein, Kieran. And in conjunction with this law firm and Toro Law School, I've helped to establish a wrongful conviction externship where I've established law students are working on wrongful conviction cases. And my goal really is to set up a clinic to assist individuals who've been wrongfully convicted because I don't want anyone else to suffer like I've suffered. My goal is to have this long-standing, ongoing program because, you know, Barry Sheck said recently that last year there was 83 exonerations nationally. And that's a disturbing number when you consider that there's not enough lawyers, there's not enough clinics working on these cases. And if we had 83 with what's available now, how many more could we achieve if there was one more clinic, one more externship, one more lawyer working on these types of cases? And, you know, when you think about 83, it's more than one a week. Um, and, you know, currently the firm I'm working at, we're actually working on two wrongful conviction cases. And really my goal would be is to walk both of them out, or at least one of them out of prison before I'm ever admitted to the bar. So I think that would be a great way to start my legal career, but also be kind of that pay-it-forward moment. Marty, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Marty, you were terrific. Thank thanks. You. That was Marty Tancliffe, who was cleared of killing his parents after spending more than 17 years in prison. He was joined by his public advocate, Lonnie Sori. The murder case of Seymour and Arlene Tancliffe, Marty's parents, remains open. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The Innocence Project is a collective of lawyers and advocates that works to exonerate those who are falsely accused and wrongfully convicted. Vanessa Podkin is the project's senior staff attorney. She joins me now in the studio. Vanessa, welcome. Thank you for having me. How long has the Innocence Project been around now? We um, have been around for over two decades. The Innocence Project was founded in 1992 by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld and started off as a very small legal clinic at Cardoza Law School. How many people have been exonerated since the Innocence Project was founded? Through the use of DNA evidence, 314 people have been proven innocent. But uh, the Innocence Project now is part of a larger network of other organizations doing innocence work. There are about 60, um, more than 60 of these organizations around the country. And when you count those who have been cleared through DNA evidence and those who have been proven innocent through other forms of evidence, that number grows to over 1,000. 
Why does the Innocence Project only focus on DNA cases? There are a couple reasons. Uh, One, we are based in New York, but we handle cases from throughout the country. And when you uh, reinvestigate cases based on non-DNA evidence, um, you know, sometimes it's more advantageous to be on the ground. So it's hard for us to do that, you know, throughout the nation. But also, you know, it's important for us to handle cases where we know we have scientific proof that people have been wrongfully convicted and are actually innocent. If no DNA is involved, how hard is it for someone to prove their innocence? It can be extraordinarily difficult. I mean, it, it's hard for us a lot of times, even with DNA. But when you don't have the science, it's it's very hard you have to, you know, uncover some type of error that occurred at trial or some other type of new evidence. I mean, there have been cases where the true perpetrator to the crime confesses or, you know, alibis come forward or other type of evidence. Um, There's whole classes of cases where people have been wrongfully convicted of crimes that were no crimes at all. Cases where, um, you know, a fire has been labeled arson and, in fact, it was just an accident Or, you know, the unfortunate death of children and it's labeled shaken baby syndrome when in actuality it was some other medical cause that led to the death. What are the leading causes for wrongful convictions in the United States? Well, in uh, violent crimes, uh, we have found through the exoneration cases that three-fourths of our cases have involved eyewitness identifications that later turned out to be wrong. And what's quite alarming is you could take a you know case like Kirk Bloodsworth um, from Maryland who was sentenced to death. And in his case, five eyewitnesses said he was the man that they saw with this little girl before she was abducted and murdered. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Somebody might think one, one ID could be mistaken, two, three. How could you get to five? How yet, does that happen? Yet they were. Well, they're, you know, over... The past few decades, we've learned a lot through social science about eyewitness identification. You know, the mind is not like a recorder, you know, accurately capturing events. And there are, you know, a lot of factors that affect the reliability of an identification. Some of those factors are uh, how the lineup happened. Uh, We've learned that when witnesses are shown a group of these six individuals, let's say, at one time, they tend to pick the person in the group who most resembles the assailant. The Innocence Project is pushing for reforms, and we've been quite successful throughout the country getting them adopted, but we have a long way to go. You know, making sure that the person who's administering the lineup doesn't know who the suspect is, because oftentimes, even unintentionally, we convey body cues that can give hints onto who to pick in the lineup recording confidence statements at the time that the witness makes the ID. Sometimes we'll have cases where a witness makes an ID in a lineup and says, I, I, it looks like him, I think it's him. But by the time the whole process you know, goes forward and you get to court, the witness isn't lying, but their confidence has grown. They've seen the person in pretrial proceedings. They know this is the person being prosecuted. By the time they get to court, they say, I'm absolutely sure. There's no doubt in my mind this is the person who did it. So there are reforms that can be implemented to uh, enhance the reliability of eyewitness identifications. So besides eyewitness misidentifications, what other causes are there for being falsely accused? Well, quite alarmingly, about a quarter of our cases involve people who have falsely confessed and even pled guilty to crimes that they didn't commit. You know, it's surprising because common sense notions say I would never admit to a crime that I didn't do. And yet, you know, we see this happen, um, you know, all the time. 
police interrogation is uh, by its nature coercive, you know, designed to get an admission from somebody who did the crime. But unfortunately, a lot of innocent people get caught up. Um, you know, we have numerous examples from New York State, Marty Tancliffe, and, um, you know, Yarbrough recently from Brooklyn, you know, both of those teenagers who were convicted of, you know, killing a parent, in Marty's case, two parents, you know, because they're young and they're, they're questioned and interrogated and, you know, the process is, is just inherently coercive. So false confessions, a leading cause of wrongful convictions. And like I said, you know, once you have a confession, some of those people go on to, to actually plead guilty to, to crimes they're completely innocent of. Uh, faulty forensics is a very big issue. And within that category, we have people who were convicted based on less reliable science, but it was the best science at the time. So microscopic hair comparison, for example, you know, 20 years ago, if a DNA testing wasn't possible on a hair, uh, scientists and would just take a hair from a crime scene, you know, maybe that a perpetrator left and look at it under a microscope and try to compare it to a suspect's hair. But that was extremely subjective, unreliable. Um, and a lot of the testimony surrounding microscopic hair comparison was exaggerated. In fact, the FBI recently has voluntarily undertaken to review cases in which their examiners testified to hair comparisons to see if there are errors and started off with cases where people were ultimately sentenced to death. But within that category, we also have uh, quote-unquote forensic sciences that are being used today in the courtroom and uh, you know are problematic and lack scientific uh, validity. So one example would be bite mark comparison. It's not the most popular, prevalent in every case, but there are many people who have been sentenced to death and convicted, sentenced to life imprisonment based on um, a forensic dentist coming in and saying, I looked at the mark on this person's body, bite mark left, and it compares to this suspect's dentition. The problem with uh, bite mark testimony is that it has never been validated. We don't know error rates. Um, you know, just because uh, somebody leaves a mark on skin, skin is extremely flexible. You know, there's just, there's absolutely kind of no check on it. Bite mark analysts don't even agree on what you need to have there to even call a match. So it's, it's but yet, even though there's just no foundation, it's basically a group of dentists who got together and, you know, wanted to help out in the forensic community. But our courts, our judges are allowing this testimony in. We've got a real problem in the courts in terms of regulating what comes in under the cloak of forensic science. It's not like it looks on CSI that there's all these uh, really reliable techniques out there. How would you describe your relationship with forensic scientists? Because it seems like you're on opposing sides in a way. Well, um, we collaborate, and a lot of times, like if you take a look at the arson cases, you know, it's you know experts within that own that that field itself that have come forward to say, you know what, that science or this testimony, you know, was inaccurate. Now we know something different, or that should have never been used. So sometimes it, it's people within the field itself. Or like the FBI, I mean, they're owning up to the possibility of, you know, egregious errors in cases and conducting this review. So, you know, we work together with the forensic science community and, you know, sometimes we are a thorn in their side. I think right now we're being a thorn in the side of the bite mark community because, 
uh, you know, there's there's really big fundamental problems about the reliability of that science. And, you know, it, it, it really means it shouldn't be used in court today. And there there is resistance to that. Is there a particular state that you would say is getting it right when it comes to criminal justice reforms? There are many states that are changing uh, either through uh, court opinions or legislation or police voluntarily taking on different practices that are taking on some of the reforms that we're talking about in terms of changing the way that we do eyewitness identification, changing the way that... Um, you know, just requiring that custodial interrogations be videotaped, for example, so we know what happened during the process. Where would you rank New York when it comes to these reforms that you're talking about? Well, uh, New York is a bit behind. Um, We have not implemented statewide eyewitness identification reform, nor have we implemented, um, you know, statewide reforms regarding Um, videotaping confessions, though jurisdictions have adopted these measures within the state, which is a bit disappointing um, because, you know, New York and Illinois were among the two first states in the country to allow post-conviction DNA testing. We've had dozens of exonerations here. And, um, you know, we really should be a leader. We should be a leader. We shouldn't be behind you know, some other states. I mean, right, you know, it wasn't until recently that New York adopted, um, uh, you know, amended its DNA law to allow people who pled guilty to get access to testing. Well, Mississippi had it before New York did. So, you know, we should be taking more of a lead. What, if anything, can be done to hold police and prosecutors more accountable to prevent coercive tactics? Well, very seldomly, are the individual police or prosecutors who are involved in wrongful conviction cases held responsible or accountable in any way? You know, prosecutors move on to be judges, uh, police officers rise the ranks and retire. And, um, you know, there have to be real consequences. In uh, Texas recently, we saw a prosecutor who um, intentionally withheld exculpatory evidence and ended up being, uh, you know, convicted and sentenced to jail for five days. Now, the person who he helped wrongfully convict spent decades in prison for uh, the murder of his wife. But, you know, that's the first time that we're seeing really somebody held accountable um, in that way. And it has to happen more and more. Our whole system is about accountability. That's what we're, you know, allegedly, you know, doing for defendants who are coming through the system. And so when it comes to actors in the system who help perpetrate crimes and, you know, it is a crime for an innocent person to be in prison if you're hiding evidence or fabricating evidence. I mean, those people should be held accountable just like everybody else is held accountable. We have amazing immunities in this country. I mean, prosecutors are basically immune for everything that they do during the prosecution. They can only be held liable for a very small amount of activity that happens at the investigation stage. So, you know, maybe we need to cut back on some of these immunities. Maybe there need to be real-life consequences. How hard is it for exonerees to rebuild their lives after spending so much time in prison? Well, it's it can be extraordinarily difficult. I mean, if you look at the you know, recent Brooklyn exoneration, those young men were 15 years old and 18 when they were wrongfully convicted and 20 years has passed. So, you know, you're a 15-year-old kid, probably never had a job, never lived on your own. You know, you come out of, you're, you know, expected to be 
and act, you know, and have all the responsibilities of somebody who's nearly 40. It's just, it's pretty impossible. And then, you know, prison is just an awful place, right? By design, it's dehumanizing. It's just, you know, meant to break down the spirit and extraordinarily violent. And so what people have endured when they're in prison and being cut off from family, I mean, it's just, it's amazing that so many people survive this experience and they do and they're able to go on and you know do quite incredible things we've had clients who go to law school and become lawyers you know people you know going back and kind of fulfilling their dreams of going to college or brian banks from california had um you know was an nfl hopeful and he was wrongfully convicted of a rape that a, a fellow classmate fabricated against him in high school and then he pled guilty to avoid a you know long prison sentence, finally proven innocent, and then last year was signed by the Falcons. I mean, those are amazing stories and just, I think, really show kind of the strength of the spirit and the conviction of the people who go through this experience. But the reality is it's extraordinarily hard. And most people come out and, you know, 20 years have passed and you've missed all that time with your family and family members have died. And um, it's, it's hard to go forward. You know, some people it's, you know, it's kind of insurmountable, but others are just amazingly successful. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That was Vanessa Podkin, senior staff attorney of the Innocence Project. You can find them online at innocenceproject.org. That's all the time we have for today. If you want more Cityscape, you can find past episodes in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. For show updates and other New York City tidbits, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. Thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. I'm George Borarki. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUVHD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.